Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Make sure you've got enough podcasts to get you through this lockdown period, however long that goes on. So this episode, Robin is joined by Professor Matthew Cobb, who was also on the Stay at Home Festival uh, podcast and live stream earlier this week, chatting about his new book, The Idea of the Brain. It has just come out. It has been fantastically reviewed across the board. Uh, So make sure you go and get that either on Kindle or if you can get a physical copy sent out to you, the hardback is a lovely thing. Gold lettering embossed uh, colour illustrations and diagrams. It's it's a lovely thing. It really is. So here is... uh, Oh, Patreon supporters meant to mention that. Uh... Thanks, obviously, as always, to our Patreon supporters. We've got some more exclusive live streams coming up with Robin and Josie and myself and some special guests just for you during this period. If you'd like to get access to those as well as extended episodes and everything else that we uh, offer to our Patreon supporters, you can become one. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to pledge. Now on to the conversation. Oh, yeah, the lobster stuff is. I don't think, from your perspective, you'll be uh, overly... Uh, no, well, that's why I haven't investigated. Even from it. my perspective, as someone who's done <laughs> almost no experimentation on lobsters now. Um, hello, welcome to Josie Robbins' book, Shambles, as is the way Josie is merely a, a figure who perhaps somewhere in the ether may occasionally be mumbling in the background, but is currently on tour, so she's not with us. Uh, but Matthew Cobb is, who has been uh, amongst... Well, in fact, Matthew's done loads of things, and he's uh, a polymath, really, polymath scientist, I think, as well, because uh, your books have not merely been about um, science, they've also been about the French resistance. You also, uh, before the book we're going to mainly talk about today, The Idea of the Brain, you were involved in doing the updated version of um, Life on Earth, weren't you, with the 40th anniversary yeah. edition? Yeah, by, by David Attenborough. So that is uh, always interests me in the same way that when they did the, the first release of Cosmos, I think, on video mm. or whatever it was, they had the update after 20 years. So when you were updating Life on Earth, what were the main areas where you went, oh, wow, we re- we did you have moments oh, yeah. of going, that's a leap? Because I know we don't have so many of those moments in the book yeah. about the brain. <laughs> the- that that was the most interesting thing about it, apart from working with the National Treasure, of course. Um, so I didn't actually work with him. I just had the text and went through it and read every sentence and thought, hmm, is that still true? Scurried away and found that some of it wasn't. So the two really big things that have changed. So if you go back to the original edition, which was written in 1974-5, came out in 76, he explains the orthodoxy at the time, which was that the dinosaurs did not disappear in any kind of cataclysmic event, that they simply kind of faded away and were slowly replaced by the mammals and the birds. Now, two years after, or a year after the book came out, uh, Alvarez, father and son, showed that there's this bizarre layer of iridium in the... Uh, it is iridium, isn't it? Yes, whatever. This bizarre layer of some uh, element in the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Tertiary. That's called the KT boundary. And that this could only have come from out of space. It's all over the world. 
So they came up with the idea, actually, there was this huge, great big asteroid that hit us. And now we know virtually where it happened in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. They've actually found that this huge, great big pillar of molten stuff would have gone up about 10 kilometers into the sky for a period of about five minutes before coming down, plunging causing climate chaos. So he didn't know about that. And so that was kind of a factoid, which was quite surprising. The big change comes in the last chapter, which was virtually completely rewritten, apart from some really nice bits where he remembered going and talking to Indonesian headhunters and so on. Uh, And that's human evolution. Mm. So the view that he put forward there was what's called multi-regional evolution. So all over uh, the old world and Africa, you find these skeletons of people that are called Homo erectus, all various peoples on our lineages. And the idea back then was that there was everybody slowly evolved, all these different groups slowly evolved into humans, hence our global distribution. Uh, Now we know that's not true and that we come from Africa and this was a big movement out of Africa and all this is based on uh, largely on ancient DNA, which proves that we are all today related to people who left Africa around about 80,000 years ago, or if you're of recent African or current African descent, your ancestors stayed in Africa. Uh, So that's a big change. And that had to be completely rewritten in the light of modern thinking. But he was just saying, you know, what people told him. So science is not always right, but it's quite often right. And it's better than any other way of acquiring knowledge that we have. Well, that's I mean, that's the whole thing. We talked about this before. It's it's about you, you never go. Now the story's finished. You go this this with the equipment we have now and the current intellectual yeah. wherewithal. This is the story that is most satisfactory in terms of evidence, etc. So that's that's it. And I think that's what one of the joys. Now this brings us to the the idea of the brain, which I've really enjoyed reading and which you told me about a while ago, which was basically saying, right. It turns out we know so little and, you know, books come out very, very often and say, hey, we found out this amazing thing. It turns out that the amygdala does this or your right brain's doing that or your left brain's doing that and all of these things. And I'm going to start with a a quote that you actually have quite near the end of the book. Um, Spoiler alert, by the way, the book ends with him looking at the future of neuroscience. So if you're wondering how it ends, there we go. But you have uh, Olaf Sporks. I hope that's the correct. uh, Neuroscience still largely lacks organizing principles or a theoretical framework for converting brain data into fundamental knowledge and understanding. Now, that's specifically, I think, in the uh, stuff about the fMRI. But overall, this seems to me to be the interesting thing, which is we still don't have the tools to understand ourselves. No. Well, it's not only ourselves. So the the thing which was most striking in kind of discovering... I had to do an awful lot of reading. I didn't know all this stuff. So a lot of the stuff I had to read and uh, current views I had to get to grips with most striking thing is, uh, so lobsters and crabs have a rather strange structure in their stomach, which is composed of about 30 neurons that grind, they, they produce a rhythm that enables the muscles of the stomach to grind up their food. And so you've got 30 neurons producing this weird kind of rhythm pulsating movement. Now, that's not a brain, and it's only doing one thing. And yet, despite the best efforts of some fantastic scientists, in particular a woman called Eve Marder from uh, Boston, she spent virtually a whole life studying the lobster's stomach, uh, we don't understand how those 30-odd neurons produce this pulsing rhythm. She's shown that you, you can get that rhythm with all sorts of different structures, and the same structures can produce different observed rhythms, and we just don't understand it. So if we don't understand the lobster's stomach then the idea that we can understand what's going on in our brains or even more significantly 
what is happening when it goes wrong and we don't feel so good, uh, well, it's not surprising that the answer is basically we don't really have much idea. Our, our understanding of these things are incredibly limited. So is this is is it currently a technological problem rather than an intellectual problem? If you, if you see what I mean, as in yeah. that we know. I remember talking to Sarah Jane Blakemore, and she she was saying the problem is we she reckoned we were at least two decades off being able to observe brains at a scale in which we can really see what is going on in terms of the actions and reactions. So you're talking about human brain. So, well, I mean, any again, any brain yeah. that really to be able to go, well, we need to look at it in such minute yeah. detail and we don't have that technology. No. Um, so it's partly a technological problem and the kind of tiny brains that I advocate to spending more time studying in the final section of the book. Uh, so brains in insects, in, in adult insects, in maggots, in larval zebrafish, so a baby fish, which is uh, used in the lab. They've got about whatever it's, I can't remember, 100,000 neurons, something like that. Uh, conceivably, in the next few decades, we'll be able to observe all of them and their activity. And that will be a step forward, but I don't think it's going to reveal anything necessarily. I mean, part of the problem is you need to tie a particular structure to a particular function. That's what we're aiming to do. So this, either the brain as a whole is doing this or these particular parts are, uh, are, are doing this. And we've got some ideas, so there are a bit... The, there's part of the brain called Broca's region, uh, which is one of the first real demonstrations of localization of function, which I'm using right now because I'm speaking. And if you have damage to this, it's on the left front side of your brain. If you have damage to that from a stroke or an injury, you can't speak. You can understand language, but you can't speak. So there are some definite things that are localized. But whenever we try and find out, OK, so that bit of the brain's doing that, in itself, that localization doesn't tell us anything. How, how does it do it? Is it a lump of cauliflower? Is it a complicated computer? Nobody's got any idea. So it's not only saying where it is, but how is it working? And then you find out that, in fact, yes, OK, that bit of the brain is involved, but there are lots of other bits of the brain involved as well. So somebody's just recently, a group has just recently looked at uh, mice and uh, looking at how they, when they're moving their whiskers and moving around, and they're moving around the cage and they found that about half of the neurons that they were studying all over the brain, not the whole, half the whole brain because they can't measure that degree of accuracy, but about half of the neurons are activated when this mouse is just wandering around its cage fiddling its little whiskers. I mean, so the, the complexity, the richness of what's going on in the mouse's head, in our heads, is currently outside of our ability to understand. And this, the spawn's quote is saying we we don't have a theory really we've got a vague idea of what brains do although people are arguing about that um but how they do it is still fundamentally mysterious see when you're talking about brockers because i find it the other <laughs> way around even more fascinating when so so someone's unable to speak but they can understand language well but when there are people who are able to speak but appear to have lost comprehension now that when it goes because that's always what like things like blind sight yeah which I, for those of you who don't know, blind sight is where someone has no awareness of being able to see, uh, and yet if you do various tests, it appears that a, a another a, I don't I don't know quite a, a, a pre uh, what's the, it's in terms of an area of the brain in terms of its it's uh, the various uh, earlier stages of visual yeah, processing that, so picking something you're not conscious of it so you and and technically someone could possibly drive a car 
I think that's going a bit. They can point to the yeah. They can point to the very well lit road. If you went for mm. a very well lit road, would you be able to yeah, do that roughly? I think you'd wouldn't want to get out of a computer simu- computer game. Maybe that way. Oh no, do I, don't, I don't think you should pick an A road. I think you should pick a you know a, a barely used B road for mm, this particular it might test. Might be a bit windy and have badges running. I better make a stuff. call at the moment and just cancel my uh, thing. <laughs> but that bit of the idea that being able to experience yeah. well, well, not experience rather to, to the light is there, but you have no knowledge that you pointed yeah. to so the right So what happens? Place. And these were, this was discovered in the seventies. These are people who are blind so they can't see you show them an image they can't say tell you anything about it if you show them a dot and say on a screen say right just take a guess where do you think it is and they just say oh i don't know and they point at it so they've got no conscious awareness that this is happening and yet there are sufficient pre-conscious processing of that for it to all make sense to them without them they can't see it but then as far as they're concerned they're guessing it's just that their guess is showing that this processing is taking place now, we know that something like that is happening anyway, because if you think about binocular vision. So I've got the impression sitting here that I can see in 3D, but that's in fact composed, and I'm closing one eye and opening the other, of two, try this at, fo- try this at home, folks, close one eye, you can see one image, shut it, open the other one, the image shifts a little bit, they're both flat, and then somehow, before I'm even conscious of what I'm looking at, these two things get stuck together by my brain, and bzam, I've got this three-dimensional view of the world. So that's, that's happening before I'm aware of it. It's happening pre-conscious parts of the brain. So the brain's doing stuff. We're not, we're not looking out of a window. That's the, the problem is we've got this impression that you've got a little man or woman sitting in your head looking out of the window like the numbskulls or uh, the people in uh, Inside Out in that cartoon uh, series, uh, cartoon film about emotions. But it's not like that at all. Our brain is actually filtering and processing and... As a 19th century uh, physiologist, Helmholtz, said, it's, it's making predictions, it's making hypotheses about what the world looks like. So you've got a part of your visual field that you can't actually see. So where the optic nerve gathers together at the back of your eyeball and all the neurons come together and go into your brain, there's a patch of your retina that hasn't got any light-detecting cells on it. So, in fact, somewhere in the kind of right or left-hand side of your visual field, there's a, there's a gap. You don't notice that at all unless you do various experiments so the part of your brain is actually saying oh it's a bit like on photoshop well let's just kind of fill that in it looks a bit like next door and it just so it puts into your brain into your mind puts a kind of image of a blurriness out there but there's nothing actually there so your whole world is an illusion man so, man, uh, while we're on the mushrooms, the uh, have you read Michael Pollan's book? Very good. Anyway, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's great. Right? <laughs> the, um, but that... So the eye has... Uh, I can't remember how many times it's separately ev- evolved. You, you, I, it, I can't remember. Five loads. or two. Loads. Yeah, yeah, right. Loads. But there are, there are not... All creatures have the problem with the optic nerve, no, no, do they? No, no, so no. are we able to work out Something by right? if we're if we're able to look at the brain of is it is it the octopus doesn't yeah. have that issue so so the octopus if we look at what we believe to be the kind of the, the 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 visual area of the brain and compare it to ours is there anything in terms of comparing that we are able to work out as in ah that that little bundle there is what's dealing with this whole or it's of no use I that's a very interesting question one I have no idea two I'd be willing to bet a vast amount of money that we wouldn't be able to see it. It's not going to be at that kind of level. It's going mm. to be at some really, probably relatively simple, but broadly distributed set of neurons that are doing this filling in business uh, in us. But the octopus doesn't need to do it because it's got its eye wired up the sensible way around. So the way that the retina is wired up in 
mammals uh, and vertebrates is the kind of the other way around from the way that anybody sensible would design it. Whereas in uh, the octopus, uh, which has a separately evolved eye, evolved at a different time, uh, that's the right way around. And you don't, as you say, you don't get this kind of weird blank spot. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. I mean, I love it and I find, personally, I find it exciting. Yeah. And it doesn't, uh, I, I don't think I have, you know, existential anxiety from it. But it really fascinates me, the idea that everything that's going on, the possibility that we're all giving, making up the idea that we're in charge. Well, yeah, I think we probably are making it up to an extent. Whether it's, I, I mean, this gets into the realm of free will, which is not in the book at all, folks. I avoid that. I'm not terribly interested in philosophy. So there's more philosophical aspects of it I don't go into. Oh, so I think, aren't you the only brain book? Because you haven't got, what's his name? You've got the uh, the hot rod going through his head, have you? Yeah, I've got him in, but oh, I tell the you? real story about it. Ah. Which is the, so uh, this is a, do we want to talk about this? No, we don't need no. to. Read what's the his book? blinking Read the name? Book. I can't remember his name now. <coughs> Henry uh, Gage. Yeah, Phineas, Phineas Gage, Gage. Phineas, Phineas Gage. Gage, yeah. So yeah. The, story, the, the key thing is you need to read my book because an Australian historian called Macmillan showed how it was actually, what actually happened, which is very different from what most people think. So the story is much more interesting and in how it's been used by different scientists at different times to show things. It was initially thought the key thing about him, he had this bloody great big tamping rod go through his head. And he was famous because he survived, not because anything specific had gone wrong with him. That all comes much later. So, anyway, read the book. But that's... Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I got you off free will too quickly, yeah. but yeah, I yeah. didn't mean no, no. to. It wasn't my fault. It was something else. <laughs> but it was... Uh, but I still... I, I mean, that's one of the things that I think is very interesting in that story as it comes up in so many different books, which is also... It seems that the history of psychology has been and especially recently there seems to be a lot of revelations in terms of the fact that you know seemingly mind-blowing papers are actually based on very small groups very often uh the test it, it's really not enough but it means you can print publish another paper and you can publish yeah. another paper and that does seem to have been a problem in terms of the history of our understanding of the brain and our behavior is that the haste to have a uh, newsworthy um that 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 in some ways yeah. Um, I mean, my book's not so much about psychology, so it's not so much about the mind. It's kind of before that. It's how the brain is doing what it's doing. But even then, there's been these continuing uh, assumptions and arguments between everything's localised. It's all, you know, like phrenologists in Victorian times are feeling the lumps on your head. Everybody from Karl Marx to Queen Victoria loved feeling people's lumps on the head and they thought they could tell things about their character. I mean, you can't, but... Uh, that kind of very localised idea versus the idea that, well, the brain is uh, distributed and even if you could can chop it half and, hey, presto, we get two minds, which is pretty kind of weird. Um, in general, it's an integrated whole. Those arguments have carried on throughout the history of brain science uh, and are still going on today. So researchers, are, you know, identifying single cells, doing particular things, but then they discovered that these cells may wrap all the way around the brain and talk to all sorts of different areas, kind of integrating signals from different parts. So it's not like a, not like a computer. There's a, a paper I talk about came out a couple of years ago in which two neuroscientists used their techniques for 
working out how the brain works on a genuine microchip. This microchip used to be in computers in the 80s and enabled you to play Donkey Kong, amongst other things. And they couldn't figure it out. So we know how a computer chip works. It's been designed. It's got ground truth, they call it. So it's, you know, it's real. It works in a particular way. But they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't even figure out how the, the, the chip worked. Never mind imagine that, in fact, this was a game being played by somebody who needed an input and you know, controllers and all the rest of it. So the, the tools, come back to your very opening question, the tools that we've got are currently uh, inadequate, hopelessly inadequate, but certainly inadequate for the, 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 the task in front of us. And I always go back to the, the lobster's stomach. If we can't understand those 30 neurons, we can't model them and show what would happen if we took one out or altered the function out of it and predict how that little circuit would behave, then we've got a bit of a difficulty in understanding how brains of any kind work and then as to how consciousness pops up and whether it's real or an illusion. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's... That's, How much who knows? study is the really is consciousness a little bit like quantum mechanics that it's one of those things that within say the world sells of, books. Uh, well, it sells books, but actually not that many people are doing an enormous amount of because yeah. when I was talking to Sean Carroll, you know about his his latest book, yeah. and he was saying you know one thing he's always told when he's trying to get grants is yeah don't talk too much about the quantum stuff because that's not <laughs> and then and it's in some ways still seen as really a. a, a well, for a lot of people, it's something that fascinates philosophers more than it fascinates those who, and in the same way, perhaps consciousness yeah. as well. There, there is an element of that, but it is, a, I mean, when I was a student, so I did a psychology degree in the 70s, and the idea of studying consciousness would have been absurd. I mean, we used to talk about it, and we just said, well, it's just some kind of epiphenomenon that emerges out of neuronal function. Let's uh, have another cup of coffee. And that would be it. Uh, now, I still think that's the case, but what's happened is that it's become... Uh, a massive area of research. I'm not necessarily saying we've got any great insights through it, but it is a very serious area of research by uh, computer scientists, by neuroscientists, by psychologists all over the world. So now tens of thousands of papers published on this. Um, but for the moment, we still can't say reliably, uh, identify whether a subject is conscious or not. You can't put somebody in an fMRI scanner and be absolutely confident that this person is consciousness or not and that's if you think of it in medical terms that's absolutely pretty significant i mean ideally if i was lying there in a coma i'd want somebody to you know put a headpiece mm. on me and say okay well he's awake or he's trapped in there or he's not um and we can't do that not even something as simple as that we're currently unable to reliably identify though we, the, the tests in terms of the medical tests have definitely improved in the last Absolutely. 10 years yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but that, that uh, again, we're getting there a, we're getting yeah. there i mean my uh, you know these things are always five ten years away mm. uh breakthroughs are always that kind of far away so my guess is that given the growing i mean fmri so that's where the brain glows and lights up there's a i mean i've there's a big difference amongst scientists about how useful it is so scientists like myself who tend to deal with cells or genes so individual units of these neural networks tend to be a bit iffy about uh, fMRI, which is incredibly coarse. So I, I can't remember the, uh, the figures are in the book. The, 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 in each pixel of a brain scan, there's something like about 200 kilometers of neuron. So the complexity, you know, the, the, the complexity of what's actually happening in the brain is far, far outweighed by this rather blurry image you get from uh, 
an fMRI scan. Nevertheless, these scans which show rate blood flow in the in the brain, that's all they're showing how your your, your brain's process how it's how it's being how it's being physiologically really what it is it's showing it's a gland, it's showing it's active rather than showing anything about processing itself. Um, those scans are in the end, I think, going to get us to somewhere of being able to say somebody's conscious or, or, or not. Whether they will reveal anything more uh, about how the brain works, I'm not quite so sure. And one of the, there's a, an excellent book uh, 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 by a couple of uh, kind of sociologists and historians of science, um, or, uh, which basically says, okay, all you brain scientists saying this bit's localised here and that bit's localised there and you spit, your brain does this. So what? How does that help us? What does it actually tell us about what is going on in those little lumps of flesh beyond saying, well, this is to do with speech or whatever? And, and the answer is, well, hmm, yeah, probably not a lot. I mean, it's useful to know where not to cut if you're doing an operation or what might be affected by a tumour. But in terms of what's going on, Saying this bit does this doesn't actually tell you very much. Also, what have we? How much have we dealt with the problems of when we're checking out and we're working out? Is that Matthew <clears throat> Cobb in there, fully aware, or is it a dead salmon? Because yeah. you you tell the dead, which is one of my I can't remember where it was first printed. There's a, there's some beautiful uh, um, journal of serendipitous and unexpected results, which I immediately <laughs> looked up as as also looking up the uh, paper voodoo correlations in social neuroscience. But the the salmon story is again an interesting one of someone. So, so can you tell us a little bit about? Okay, the so dead these salmon? are these are some uh, straight arrow uh, fMRI researchers who are worried that basically researchers are fooling themselves in their imputing too much information to the images you see on these in the, in the papers and all these the bits of brain glowing. So they got a salmon. Uh, it was dead. They put it in an fMRI scanner and they showed it some photos and then they asked it questions about what it thought about the photos. So it had to emote. And whilst it was doing this, and of course it wasn't doing anything because when it was a fish too, it was dead, they noticed that different parts of the brain would light up. In other words, it's just random noise, either in the fish's dying brain or on the scanner. So this was a satirical attempt to say to the community, look, you've got to take your criteria a lot more seriously. And this is a general move that has been uh, taking place. A number, there's been two more occasions recently, statistical arguments, where that's where the Voodoo Correlations paper you mentioned came in. There's been another row about three or four years ago whereby people have said, basically, you know all those little dials on your FMI machine where you kind of turn it up to 11? You've been setting them wrong. Uh, a paper came out that argued that up to 40,000 FMRI papers weren't true because basically they'd set their dials wrong on their machine. That was kind of reduced to a few thousand, but the, the argument still holds. Um, I think that often these studies... Uh, are based they're really they're really replicated this is what you mentioned earlier on part of the problems of psychology is you find small sample studies and a conclusion is drawn and then the researchers move on nobody generally repeats the study or even starts off by saying okay we predict that this bit of the dead salmon's brain will light up if we show it a picture if they'd done that said before we do the experiment okay be, because this is where the visual area of the salmon is, we would predict it would be in here. Or this is the emotional area. We would predict it would be this bit that lights up. If they've made that prediction, 
they'd have wouldn't have found anything because the random noise that there was in the scan wouldn't have been in those two areas. So the idea of predicting and registering the trial beforehand, so there's a public database, so you say, right, we're going to look at this area of the brain because we think this is involved. If you do then find it with a small sample, you can be a bit more confident that it was actually true rather than you just finding all sorts of, you know, noise like on a mm. an old TV screen, you know, shimmering. Oh, look, that one's lighting up. That must be real. So that's the problem. We're fooling ourselves, as Feynman said. Now, you also you, you write about chemistry of, of the brain. And again, in terms of our understanding of uh, various different issues of mental health. And uh, I, I know some people might listen to the episode we did as well about Nathan Filer. And mm-hmm. we won't get into if If we use the term schizophrenia, you can then go and check on Nathan's stuff on that as well. Um, but things like working out lithium lithium which as far as i know it has had a, a good success yeah, rate absolutely um and that, and that starts off genuinely with actual guinea pigs yeah absolutely so australian researcher um noticed that uh, he gave lithium to his guinea pigs and it calmed them down uh he then starts trying it out with uh human patients who were you know severely distressed uh through having psychotic episodes or whatever and it worked. These patients were able to uh, recover really quite quickly, uh, only as long as they take the, the medicine. What's interesting is this is a period in the late, early, late 1940s, early 1950s, where basically our whole view of brain function begins to change. And we realize that the, the chemistry of the brain is really, really important. And the pharmaceutical industry start developing all sorts of tranquilizers and, and other drugs. And... They weren't interested in lithium or lithium salt because uh, you can just get it. It's free. <laughs> it's cheap. So there's no money to be made out of it. So it took an astonishing 20 or so years, 25 years, before lithium was allowed to be prescribed in the USA because there was this you know, ra- far rather go for an expensive prescription drug that might not actually work so well as this very common drug uh, that you could get off the, off the shelf for, for peanuts. And so there's something called, amongst the uh, New York psychiatrists, there was something called the Lithium Underground, who were people who were prescribing this, even though legally you weren't allowed to in the States at the time, in order to provide some kind of relief uh, to patients with various uh, schizophrenia, psychotic disorders and so on. So what do we learn, or what are we able to learn about the brain? I mean, you, you mentioned also things like mescaline, that there was the, the people realised that sometimes when taking mescaline that the, it would actually give you uh, characteristics of kind of schizophrenic episodes. Yeah. So once going, right, so this is doing this in the brain, what do we then learn about the brain itself? Or how much do we, is it possible to learn? <laughs> Well, what we learned, I mean, you've got to remember that all this stuff is very broad brush. So you found that you find that some drugs which you can prove in the in the test tube are having particular effects on different neurotransmitters, as they were eventually called, produce symptoms that look like a psychotic episode or whatever. So that led to the hypothesis, well, maybe these particular neurotransmitters, alterations in their activity, are what underlies various forms of mental illness. Um and that has has had a very mixed consequence. So some of these drugs, I mean, generally the whole thing is a cycle of boom and bust. The drug gets developed, everybody gets very, very excited, and then it either turns out it has horrendous side effects or it doesn't actually do what you think you're going to do, and then they move on to another one. What is striking is that that is now at an end. Right. So all of the big pharmaceutical companies, which rode this wave of luck 
with the accident. All the, most of the discoveries they made were by complete accident uh, in the 1950s. They've all now abandoned development of drugs for, say, anxiety, depression, because they don't think there's money in it and there's no guarantee that it'll work. So the pipeline, as Nicholas Rose, the sociology of medicine, has put it, the pipeline's empty. There's nothing coming down the wire. Um, we haven't got... What we've got at the moment, the latest um, thing is uh, ketamine. Ketamine is the latest drug that has been come from the recreational world into uh, the medical world. That's going to be uh, used as a uh, treatment for de depression. My guess is in 10 years' time, it might we might not be quite so enthusiastic about it. But there's nothing else coming. So we know that the brain is works by this electrochemical pathways. Uh, but, you know, you take a drug that's going to knock out all your serotonin up, reuptake. I mean, that's all across your brain. It's not specific. Mm. You mentioned Galen. We're, we're nearly out of time, so okay. we'll get to the beginning of the book. Um, the, uh, <laughs> and it does seem that, you know, he, he was someone who, partly because he also would work with wounded gladiators and all manner of different things that gave him access to actually being able to basically get his hands on brains, that is one of the issues that the, why we've had so little progress, the fact that there's been very small windows of opportunity where people have been able to uh, actually examine the brain itself. So that we have, there's, I, I think, you know, you say obviously that, that period with Galen, there's small windows kind of in the 15th century and around mm -hmm. then as well. Well, the, the, part of the problem, the, the Greeks had a big argument. Aristotle thought the brain was just for cooling stuff. Uh, other people said, no, the brain is for thinking. This is where it all goes on. So Aristotle thought it was in the heart, which is probably what most people around the world for most of our history have thought the heart. You know, that's why I'm downhearted. Um, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve, all those other heart words. That's that's where that comes from. It's still alive in us. It feels that way. Um, so Galen didn't act... The interesting thing about Galen is though he did... Uh, uh, an astonishing experiment, which I'm not going to describe because it might make people's hair curl. Uh, but it is in the book, but it does warn you when it's coming. Uh, that was on a pig. So Galen, one of the problems with Galen, he saw lots of things in animals which he thought were in humans. He didn't actually dissect dead human bodies. So human bodies were dissected in Alexandria in the 4th century BC. And then again, much, much later in kind of 14th century Italy. And that's when it begins and we can start to look inside the brain it becomes acceptable to do human dissections. Uh, but even then, you know, I'm not. It tells you the brain's really, really complicated. And that's about it, I think. There's such I love some of that. Like when you talk about we, we I can't remember who the person was where they decided that the brain was basically like the equivalent of, of different metals reacting together. And so removed a kitten's brain and then placed zinc and silver in there to see what happened. And went, oh, no, the, it's still working. Still, yeah, I, mean, well, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that's also really... not true. So but this is a, this is some he may even he, he is. This is this guy in about 1810 uh, and nobody actually believed him at the time. And it's not true. It can't be true. So, he, yeah, I mean, it's a really. Oh, no, but it's thing. just it's still fascinating in terms of just going. Right. So you just, yeah, just stick some zinc and silver and see what goes and, on. And uh, you get yeah. electricity. So, uh, yeah, once people realise that electricity was uh, in brains, then that begins to change everything at the beginning of the 19th century and leads to ideas about Frankenstein and so on.
Well, there's loads of uh, there's. A, I mean, I I want to talk about the Triune Brain, of course, Paul McLean's thing oh, because for God's the sake. first I think no, it was the second Carl Sagan book I ever read was the Dragons of Eden, and uh, it is. Uh, what was it? There's a great line where you 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 talk. I, I'm trying to find it now. Where just oh yeah, this kind of guff sold like hot cakes. So um, and he actually won the Pulitzer, didn't he? He did indeed, but. It is, I'm afraid all you Sagan lovers out there, it is awful. I mean, it's just so bad. I was embarrassed. Well, it's also not his area, is it? I mean, that's the interesting. Yeah. I'm not that someone has to stay within their area, but it seems that the trying brain theory of kind of the three layers of evolution. Yeah. And so we can go, my bloody lizard brain made well, me do that. Well, we're back there again. It's the same idea as Galen. It's these impulsions mm. because that's what it feels like that we're not in control because, you know, we're not. Um, therefore, you can impute it to some powerful force your reptilian brain in the case of Sagan's argument uh, or your chemical imbalance or your humours but it's actually a bit more interesting that what it is I have no idea well, thank you very much. There's loads of we talk about the the, the Jennifer Aniston uh, Jennifer Aniston cells. Jennifer Aniston cells. You can find out more about that in the book as well. Noradrenaline. I wanted to talk about that as well because that was uh, there is um, and it's what's great is I mean uh, the book that had to be that long to basically say <laughs> we haven't got anywhere yet. Wait till we start getting places. How well, many volumes is the next one going to be? Well, I suspect it won't be me writing it. Well, it's uh, the idea of the brain is out in uh, early March, and I'm sure you'll be able to hear Matthew on lots of other things as well. And uh, it's great. It's yeah. It's just I, I love that the mixture of, of stories, and also I think it's very useful because, as, as you know, I, I forced you to read someone's book about neuroscience, <laughs> written again by an, another uh, non-expert, a, a comedian's book about it, and who kind of attacks neuroscience, whereas you don't so much attack neuroscience. Just say, well, these are the as you say at the beginning as well, lovely thing about science, you go, it doesn't mean these people were idiots because they thought this no, in the past. They're never this idiots. This was what, you know, it, it's very easy to, why on earth did they think that? And you go, well, there may have been lots of different reasons yeah. that led that, to that. That's and, always the challenge in the history of science is to see why didn't they see what we see? Why didn't they understand? What didn't they get? And then you can start to get some insight into where ideas come from, how science works, which is really the kind of underlying story about it's not just about the brain it's about science as a a way of knowing thank you very much thanks thank Matthew. brilliant don't know why i bothered making all those notes <laughs> thank you for listening thank you to our patrons patreon.com slash book shambles is where you can go to support us check out matthew's book uh if you are going to get that do try and uh get it through an independent bookshop that is still shipping at the moment obviously this is a really tough time for independent bookshops so if that is an option for you we would recommend you go that route we'll be back next week with another new episode stay safe stay home and we'll see you soon this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions